welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. In the summer of 1984, I took a six-week leave of absence from work so my family could visit my extended family in the city of New Delhi, India, especially my children, Sheila and Vijay, my son, your pastor, had not even met some of their cousins. So that part of the trip went famously and we had a wonderful time reconnecting with the family. But there was another dimension to that visit that I hadn't been prepared for. Being exposed to so many poor people all around me, and not just a few, but many, 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 the weight of human suffering relentlessly pressed itself upon me week after week after week. And then as the person of faith, whose life had been significantly affected and transformed by my personal relationship with Jesus Christ, I also struggled with their their spiritual needs. The fact that most of them had never heard the good news in Jesus, probably are not likely to hear it, and if they did, would probably have a hard time understanding its implications. My own parents, whom of course knew very well, were part of my spiritual journey with Jesus for over 21 years, hadn't yet grasped the significance of that in my life. And to make matters worse, just barely four years ago, I had resigned from Atomic Energy of Canada and become a pastor of a church. And now, everything I had been doing for the last four years in Rexdale Alliance Church seemed completely irrelevant to this massive human need around me, both uh, material and spiritual. So I just seriously considered coming back home and resigning from the church and seeing if I could get my job with Atomic Energy Canada back again. Now, this temptation was not to walk away from my faith in Jesus, but in my case, it was to just get my job back and retreat into a nice house behind the proverbial white picket fence in suburbia and leave the problems of the world to God to take care of. You see, I was going through some hard times. They were not financial, they were not relational, they were not physical, but they were engaging me at the level of my worldview, calling into question my purpose in life and my calling. And sometimes those are the hardest ones because they have a potential to spill over into every other dimension of life. Now, perhaps some of you can identify with what I went through. Maybe you've had struggles at that worldview level where your purpose in life and your calling seem to be precipitated into a crisis. Maybe others of you have hard times that are much more, uh, I guess, common perhaps, uh, the physical ones, the relational ones, and the uh, vocational ones, for example. Be that as it may, the challenge that we've been put before us in this series that we are drawing to a conclusion today is how to in hard times, not merely endure, but actually become new people. Because it is possible to endure and still be left harsh, cynical, disengaged, and yes, even better. So the challenge is how to become better rather than bitter in hard times, which is in fact the definition of resilience as we have come to understand it. And when it comes to this bitter versus better issue, perspective is all important. Listen to Dr. Andrea Bonvar, who is writing in uh, Psychology Today in the March 2016 issue in an article entitled Nine Mental Habits That Can Make You Better. This is what she says. Many aspects of our personalities and emotional makeups develop over time 
through the habits we have adopted, the ways we interpret events, the thoughts that run through our heads like clockwork, and the explanations we give for how the world works. Few people want to become better and negative, and yet it is not uncommon, especially for people who have experienced more than their share of tough times. So there is it. Hard times can make us bitter because of our perspective on those hard times. Therefore, if we are going to become resilient in hard times and get bitter, better rather than bitter, we're obviously going to need to change our perspective, which of course begs the question, how do we do that? Now, of course, it's going to require some rigorous thinking, careful thinking, because all has to do with perspective, right? But that's not enough. Because emotions like bitterness and other emotions associated with rejection and injustice run deep. And just like when you have a toothache, you are unable to either develop or follow logical arguments in a term paper or even listening to a message like this. In the same way, these deep-seated emotions can get in the way of the kind of careful thing that is needed when it comes to building perspective. Therefore, these perspective changes, if they're going to change the way in which we live, are going to have to move from the head that 18 long inches to the heart. And that's where our topic for today comes in. Prayer. Yes, you heard me right, prayer. Now, I can imagine your immediate reaction. Come on, Sundar. How can that be relevant at all? Typical, impractical advice. After all, your problems were with God. What is the point praying to God? How can that be a problem, a solution to our problem? And think of it this way, though, and you might find it helpful. All of us can probably talk about relationships in our lives, conversations with people that have actually helped us think differently about a particular set of circumstances or an incident or even a person. And as a result of which, we've actually found our emotions even changing to the better. Now, prayer is exactly that. It functions only. It's a vertical relationship with God and has exactly the same way or the same potential to change us. In fact, even deeper, because when we are dealing with human beings at the horizontal level, we sometimes find ourselves pushing back. But God, as our creator, is able to actually affect us at a much deeper level where these kinds of perspectives need to change. Now, any old prayer won't do that, just like any old conversation with people won't do that. We've had conversations with human beings at the horizontal level that don't help us at all. So we're talking about the kind of prayer that will actually build resilience in us to enable us to become better people rather than bitter people, to become new people rather than just endure. That's what we're going to be talking about today. The kind of prayer that is actually able to build resilience in us. Listen to the story of a man named Asaph. He was probably a member of the musical guild and a worship leader, perhaps, in the temple, functioning in the court of King David, most likely. So approximately two to three millennia ago. His story is recorded in a book called the Psalms, which was actually a collection of songs that Israel used in their worship. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. 
they close themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure, and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my, heart and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. All right, let's dig a little bit deeper into this prayer journey of Asaph. He begins in the first three verses. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. His life and his theology were, beat, were clashing and life was thrashing up on theology. You see, his theology said God is good to his people and good to individuals who are walking in harmony with him and in submission to his ways. And it should be the opposite with people who have no room for God in their lives. In fact, as he looks at life though, exactly the opposite of what theology says should happen is happening. While his life has got all kinds of hardships, and he'll spell them out a little bit later, the people that don't seem to have much room for God in their lives are having it go really, really well with them. And the longer he looks at them, the more he begins to envy them. And envy eventually or inevitably leads to bitterness. You know why? As Dorothy Sayers, that great British novelist put it, envy begins by asking, why don't I have what they have? It then moves from there to, why should they have what I don't have? And then moves from there to a desire, wishing that they didn't have it. And if it was within your power, you would take it away. But because it usually isn't, you begin to go bitter in it. And as a result of this process, he said, I was losing my foothold. Life was bashing up on theology. Envy was becoming bitterness in my life. Everything seemed to be going good for them. My very foundations were shaking. And then he takes the next few verses, almost half of the psalm, to spell out in great detail 
all the things that were happening for the good to those who had no time for God, which was deepening and deepening his envy to the point where he was about to quit. For in verse 13, he says this, Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. His heart refers to the inner springs of his actions and his hands refer to his actual ethical behavior. And the word vanity here doesn't mean pride that you and I normally think it means and use it in certain settings. It simply means pointless. So basically what he was saying was, if this is what's going to happen to people who are, have no time for God and everything's going well with them, and people like me who are trying to obey God are having it difficult, what's the point? Either internal purity or external ethical behavior, both of them seem completely pointless. That, that was where he had arrived at. It was a battle of the two surely. <laughs> surely God is good to those who are pure in heart. Surely in vain have I kept my hands pure. Sort of like the situation that I was finding myself in in India, right? What is the point? What is the point? I need to get back to engineering and quit my job. Now for me, as I said, the temptation was just to not abandon my faith entirely, but just kind of retreat into a privatized expression of it, away from the problems of the world. But for some people, and Asaph I think probably, it might have meant a total abandonment. Maybe there are some of you listening to me who have completely walked away from faith or never considered it because of these kinds of tensions and hardships in your life. Are those the only two options? A partial or a total retreat away from faith? Well, let's continue with Asaph. And we find that the first step towards that upward spiral out of that deep pit that he found himself in was found in verse 15. If I had said I would speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. In everyday language, what he's saying is, if I keep on saying things like this, oh, it's pointless, it's useless. What is the point being good on the inside and good on the outside? That's what he means by if I speak thus. If I keep make, saying those negative things, there are other people whose spiritual and emotional welfare depends upon my persevering. They are going to be affected negatively by this. So that was his first starting point, that he wasn't making decisions in a vacuum, but there was potential to impact people who were within his sphere of influence. Therefore, he says, I better think a little bit more. I just need to think a little bit more about this issue. Remember, it's all about building perspective properly. But it doesn't help, because in verse 16 it says, when I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. Now, what does a man do when you're in that situation? You cannot find an intellectual resolution to your problem. But you also can't walk away from your life because other people's welfare depends upon it. What would you and I do in that situation? Our faith seems to be not making any sense anymore given the realities of the world around us and our circumstances. But there are other people. This generation. He was probably thinking about the people that he leads in worship. You and I might be thinking about people in our lives, family members, friends. And so, he's in a real dilemma. Now we get to the turning point. And the turning point is found in the next verse. It was oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary of God. Now what was the sanctuary? 
For him, it was the temple where he did his work. And in the temple, he had a full or full-bodied encounter with God and experienced the near presence of God. This happened as he listened to scripture that was read and scripture that was explained. Uh, as he prayed, uh, often the prayers were the Psalms, songs themselves. And as he, along with the community, reenacted and relived some of their great redemptive acts in history, and therefore he was able to connect and experience and literally relive again the faithfulness of God to his people in difficult times. So word and prayer and ritual all combined together to a full-orbed experience of God's presence, so much so that what he could not do outside the sanctuary just by a mental exercise was beginning to happen inside the sanctuary because, you see, it was not just mind, but his imagination was also hooked by stories, by music, and by acted-out ritual. And we're going to be acting out one of those rituals today at the end. And inside the sanctuary, he actually broke through to three fresh realizations. First of all, in verse 17 and 18, he says, Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. He has a different understanding and perspective on the very people that he was envying. I'm not the one that's slipping. He said, they're on slippery ground. The long-term consequences of a life that leaves God out of the picture is really not worth envying. He doesn't elaborate on that, but he makes that as his first realization. But then something much more important happened. He gets a better perspective on himself. Look what he says in verses 21 and 23. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. He realized what was happening to him outside the sanctuary. Remember, this is where he thought he was a good man. He was good on the inside. He was good on the outside. Why wasn't God good to him? That, it all started with his understanding of his own goodness. Everything changes inside the sanctuary. He said, I let the legitimate emotion of grief slowly become the sinful emotion of envy. As a result of that, I became bitter. As a result of that bitterness, I became senseless. I forgot that envy itself was one of the commandments of God that I was breaking, and I wasn't as good as I thought I was. In fact, I was just responding like a brute beast, meaning I was responding at a purely instinctual level. See the progression? Envy, bitterness, loss of sense, dehumanization. That's what he recognized was happening to him. So he saw the people he was envying differently, that they really not, didn't need to be envied because of where they were heading. He saw himself differently. His supposed goodness that produced the whole tension was actually not all of that. And it was literally dehumanizing him. But thirdly, most important of all, he broke through to a new understanding of who God was. Remember, that's where all this problem started. God, you're supposed to be good. To me, because I'm good. I'm good on the inside, good on the outside. That's where his problem started. And he saw the goodness of God now in a very different way. Not in just all the nice things in life that were happening to the people that he envied and which weren't happening to him. Instead, he says, you hold me by your right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me into glory. They're all new dimensions of God's goodness. First of all, he said, you hold me by your right hand. Proximity to God, intimacy with God. That was a huge mark of God's goodness. <laughs> Remember he said earlier on, my feet had almost slipped. Why was it almost? Why didn't he actually completely slip? Because somebody else 
was holding on to him. Just like we hold on to our, our sons or our daughters or little children when they're walking on an icy patch. Even when their feet slip, they don't fall because we've got our steely grip upon them. That's because we are good fathers. We are good mothers. In the same way, he holds me by my right hand. Secondly, he holds me by my right hand to guide me, to guide me through these perplexing comparisons that life keeps throwing up. When theology and life are clashing and life is beating up on theology, I need guidance. He's going to give that to me. And he will do it so well, he will never stop doing it because he will finish what he started in my life. He will guide me all the way into glory. And that's a short form expression for meaning. I will stand in the immediate presence of God where the, where the beauty, glory, and the majesty of Jesus and God that I can only get hints of right now, I will be able to see. And for a worship leader to see that, you can imagine what it would have meant to him. See how completely he has an understanding of God's goodness now. It's not in all the good or the bad things that happen to us or to other people. It is in intimacy, guidance, and perseverance right to the very end. While our feet may slip, only almost slip. Therefore, therefore he ends in verse 28. But as for me, remember he began by saying, surely God is good, but as for me, my feet were slipping. No, no, he is a different as for me now. The transformation is complete. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I get you, God. That's the near good, real goodness. I have therefore made you the sovereign Lord, my refuge. And by the way, I'm going to tell everybody. And did he not tell it to us? You and I wouldn't have Psalm 73 today guiding us if he didn't actually make that resolution. So, we want to sum up his entire experience in one sentence. Here it is. Prayer may not change what you see, but prayer will change how you see. Perspective. Prayer may not change what you see, but prayer will change how you see. In a few moments, the worship team is going to come us and lead us in a song, which in itself is an invitation to run into the arms of this God. I would encourage you as you listen to the song to actually use it for that very purpose. Begin that journey back to the good God right now. Where will you run, my soul? Where will you go when wells run dry? When the wind starts to blow, how you gonna keep this flame alive? In the fading light when night is breaking, I know you Spend with
Asaph led us into a secret, right? That prayer may not change what we see, but prayer will change how we see. Now, that was his experience 3,000 years ago. So, when we are attempting to forge connections from his journey to ours in our hard times so that we will become resilient people praying resilient prayers, there's not a direct one-to-one correspondence. What we can f- use to forge those connections are look for some clues so that our story intersects with his story. So I want to give you three of those clues that I have found helpful in my journey of harnessing Psalm 73 or the secret of Psalm 73 for my life in hard times. First of all, Asaph lets himself go. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't hold back, right? Do you know if you read the whole Psalm? 14 of the 28 verses, 50% of his prayer is about this lamenting and complaining. He spells out in great detail all the good things that are happening to those who have no time for God in sharp contrast to himself. As if God didn't know. He spells it all out. He said, God, you said you're going to be good to me, but you're not good to me even though I've been good to you. He just spells it all out. And so that's okay for us. It's obviously not the place where we end, but it's a necessary starting point. 
So join Asaph in letting yourself go. Pour out your heart to him, spilling out the very specific details. And this is where you could even use many of the Psalms. Interestingly, half the Psalms, there are 150 songs in Israel's songbook. Half of them are these kinds of lamentations, as we call them, complaints to God. They give us a vocabulary with which to complain properly to God. A recent story that testifies to the power of the Psalms like this it comes from the pen of Andrei Sakharov. He was a Nobel laureate, a physicist, a Russian, but because he spoke out critically against the communist government, he was sentenced into domestic exile for several years. Many years later, when he was doing an interview with the Toronto Star and they were asking him how he survived that time in exile, he said one of the things he used to do was every day translate one psalm from Hebrew, which he knew as a Jew, into Russian, which he knew as a Russian. And so he was doing exactly this kind of thing. The psalms were training him in pouring out to God, obviously these very difficult times when he needed to let himself go. Secondly, Asaph made himself think. Remember his journey back began by saying, if I speak this way, if I keep on thinking like this, I'm going to betray other people. So a part of making yourself think is to think about the impact your decisions are going to have on other people whose spiritual welfare depends upon you. Uh, you know, for me right now, with, with my children both grown up and married with their own children, those six grandchildren that God has blessed us with are the prominent ones that come to my mind when I think, wow, if I speak in this way, how is it going to affect them? <laughs> and and uh, if a few years ago, someone gave me a metaphor for my influence in their life or my role in their lives at this stage. He, he, she said to me after he, hearing a sermon, Sunda, you are a gem polisher. <laughs> And as I continue to think about that, the, the, the picture or the truth that settled on my heart was that these six grandchildren that God has given to me are the gems. As Proverbs says, grandchildren are a jewel in your crown. And I got a beautiful gift for Father's Day when my children gave me this little keychain and this little brass rectangle that you see in there has got the names of my six grandchildren, has got a little precious stone that, that is approximating their birthstone color. And this is going to be with me all the time because I will have to always be able to say, if I speak in this way, how is it going to affect my polishing task? Now, there may be others for you. It may be grandchildren, maybe somebody else. I also have spiritual sons and daughters whose welfare also in some way depends on mine. All of this shows the crucial importance of having some kind of a kingdom cause governing your life before you get into these hard times is going to make this dimension of recovery so much easier. So let yourself go, make yourself think, and then finally pull yourself together. And this is the sanctuary experience we've been talking about. Pull yourself together the way Asaph did inside the temple. This is where God's word and prayer are fused together. In God's word, in his word, we hear him speak to us. And listening to God is a very important part of this kind of resilient praying that changes perspective appropriately. And, and, and as we read those scriptures and you will have the weekly blogs that are written for you so you can just do that tracking with this uh, sermon today as you read those various things can happen you hear about other Asaphs other people who in other difficult circumstances broke through to a fresh perspective through resilient praying and faith begins to build up in your heart that yes it's possible for me so I'm going to keep praying uh, you might also 
uh, read in those same scriptures about other dimensions of God. For example, one that helps me a lot when it comes to resilient prayer is the fact that God is eternal. God is sovereign. God is Lord over time. Which means he speaks in such a way that his eternity touches my time and rescues me from the tyranny of the urgent. All the busyness, there's so many things we have to do. It's another thing that gets in the way of resilient praying. And so encountering this eternal God in this kind of whole person encounter makes a big difference and tames the tyranny of time. And then we also get to rehearse our huge history. Our faith goes back generations, millennia. And we get to see the faithfulness of God through all those centuries. So in all of those ways, God's word speaks to us. And then as he speaks to us, we speak back to him, taking our cues from what he has spoken to us about. We speak back to him in prayer, whether it's pouring ourselves out, whether it's praying for the people whose, influ- whose uh, spiritual welfare depends on ours, or praying that in our own hard circumstances he will come and do this work, what he did for others he will do for us. All of those wa- various ways you pray ba- based on what you heard. And, and this is where don't forget the power of music and, and songs, both old and new, where God both speaks to you and you speak back to him. Alan Bloom, many years ago, a professor in the U.S., wrote a book called The Closing of the American Mind. And in that, commenting upon music, both good and bad, he read this. He said, armed with music, man can damn rational doubt because music provides an unquestioned authentication of any activity that it accompanies. So what does that fancy, those fancy words? It just simply means that truth that is simply articulated in sentences or prose may touch our minds. But when that truth is presented in poetry accompanied by music, then it descends at 18 inches from the head to the heart. It affects our imagination and does an end run around our intellect and energizes our wills. For example, a pastor, me, anybody else preaching, Vijay, someone else may say to you in in the course of a sermon or whatever, five or seven minutes of how much God loves us. Maybe they'll quote verses and whatnot. And you kind of believe it a little bit. But then the worship team gets up and you start singing, Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. There's no mountain you won't climb up, no shadow you won't light up coming after me. There are no walls you won't pull down, no lies you won't tear down coming after me. What's happening to you? You are just joining in that singing wholeheartedly. The poetry and the music did something that prose could not do by itself. So don't forget to harness the power of that. So, if you want to become better rather than bitter in hard times, If you want to go beyond surviving to thriving. If you want to go beyond enduring to become new people. Learn to pray. Perspective changing prayers. Like Asaph did. By letting yourself go. Making yourself think. And pulling yourself together. And by the way, don't forget to show up on Sundays in the sanctuary. Because you never know what's going to happen. Come back with me to New Delhi, 1984. September 2nd, the last Sunday evening, because the next day we were flying back. I was still in that dejected frame of mind, seriously considering resigning my job as a pastor when I got back. Retreating from this world, disengaging. 
And the man got up to speak. He was the president of Wycliffe Bible Translators. Uh, it's an organization that translates the Bible into various languages that are, not e that are only spoken, not even written. Long, hard, arduous work in very difficult places. But people do it so that others can read the Bible in their own language. He told the story uh, uh, of the first miracle that Jesus did. And for those of you who may not remember, Jesus turned water into wine because in a, at a wedding feast, the steward had run out of all the wine, which is a huge embarrassment uh, to the host. And so Jesus' mother had come to him uh, and he told uh, the servants there to go fill up six 20-gallon drums with water. Uh, and then he said to the steward, go drop, draw that water up. And it actually turned out to be the best wine. He read that story and then he just said four things. He said, Jesus could have occupied center stage, but he made human beings do the work, the servants. Secondly, he said, the need was for wine, but he told them to fill it up with water. Does the work they were doing seem irrelevant to the need? Yeah, that's exactly. I kept saying, yes, 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 that's me. And then the third thing he said was this, only Jesus can turn water into wine, but without water, there would have been no wine. And then fourthly, he said, Jesus saves the best for last because that wine was the best of all. And then he went on to tell story after story after story of Wycliffe Bible translators that had worked for five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years without any fruit, any effect, beneficial effect in the lives of the people that they're working with. When suddenly there was a huge explosion of response to Jesus as people read those scriptures. I got up a completely transformed man. I came back home, spent 32 more years in that same church as a pastor. I made 60 different overseas trips to 18 different countries, 14 of those trips back to India, all because I entered the sanctuary and my perspective got drastically changed. Where would I be today if I hadn't gone to the sanctuary? The trajectory of my life would have been completely different. The trajectory of Vijay's life would probably have been completely different, which means there might never have been the well and you and I wouldn't be here today. You never know what's waiting for you in the sanctuary. I want you to listen now to a modern day Asaph writing a modern day Psalm 73 as she struggled with the ravages of cancer in her frail body. God is on the bathroom floor. After the doctor told me I was dying, and after the man I married said he didn't love me anymore, I chased a miracle in California, and 16 weeks later, I got it. The cancer was gone. But when my brain caught up with it all, something broke. I later found out that all the tragedy at once had caused a physical head trauma and my brain was sending false signals of excruciating pain and panic. I spent three months propped against the wall. On nights that I could not sleep, I laid in the tub like an insect, staring at my reflection in the shower knob. I vomited until I was hollow. I rolled up under my robe on the tile. The bathroom floor became my place to hide, where I could scream and be ugly, where I could sob and spit and eventually doze off, happy to be asleep, even with my head on the toilet. I have had cancer three times now, and I've barely passed 30. There are times when I wonder what I must have done to deserve such a story. 
I fear sometimes that when I die and meet with God, He will say that I disappointed Him or offended Him or or failed Him. Maybe He'll say I just never learned the lesson or that I wasn't grateful enough. But one thing I know for sure is this. He can never say that He did not know me. I'm God's downstairs neighbor, banging on the ceiling with a broomstick. I show up at his door every day, sometimes with songs, sometimes with curses, sometimes apologies, gifts, questions, demands. Sometimes I use my key under the mat to let myself in. Other times I sulk outside until he opens the door to me himself. I have called him a cheat and a liar, and I meant it. I have told him I wanted to die, and I meant it. Tears have become the only prayer I know. Prayers roll over my nostrils and drip down my forearms. They fall to the ground as I reach for him. These are the prayers I repeat day and night, sunrise, sunset. Call me bitter if you want to. That's fair. Count me among the angry, the cynical, the offended, the hardened. But count me also among the friends of God. For I have seen him in rare form. I have felt his exhale, laid in his shadow, squinted to read the message he wrote for me in the grout. I'm sad too. If an explanation would help, he would write me one. I know it. But maybe an explanation would only start an argument between us. And I don't want to argue with God. I want to lay in the hammock with him and trace the veins in his arms. I remind myself that I'm praying to the God who let the Israelites stay lost for decades. They begged to arrive in the promised land, but instead he let them wander, answering prayers they didn't pray. For 40 years their shoes didn't wear out, fire lit their path each night. Every morning he sent them mercy bread from heaven. I look hard for the answers to the prayers that I didn't pray. I look for the mercy bread that he has promised to bake fresh for me each morning. The Israelites called it manna, which means, what is it? That's the same question I'm asking, again and again. There's mercy here somewhere, but what is it? What is it? What is it? I see mercy in the dusty sunlight that outlines the trees, in my mother's crooked hands, in the blanket my friend left for me, in the harmony of the wind chimes. It's not the mercy that I asked for, but it is mercy nonetheless. And I learn a new prayer. Thank you. It's a prayer I don't mean yet, but I will repeat until I do. Call me cursed, call me lost, call me scorned, but that's not all. Call me chosen, blessed, sought after. Call me the one who God whispers his secrets to. I'm the one whose belly is filled with loaves of mercy that were hidden for me. Even on days when I'm not so sick, sometimes I go lay on the mat in the afternoon light to listen for him. I know it sounds crazy and I can't really explain it, but God is there even now. I've heard it said that some people can't see God because they won't look low enough. And it's true. Look lower. God is on the bathroom floor.
floor.